I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the second season of Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. For the second season, we're focused on sustainable entrepreneurship, and in this episode, BOF's chief correspondent in New York, Lauren Sherman, sits down with Yael Aflalo, the founder of Reformation. Yale became passionate about finding a better way to do business based on her previous experience in fashion. I was working on a project for Urban Outfitters to make shoes for them, and that's when I kind of had this moment where I you know, was confronted with this really terrible, horrifying pollution in China. So it was like, you can't breathe. It was just really bad. Basically realized that I couldn't continue doing what I was doing and I needed to do something different. Today, Yael rigorously categorizes every material used by her business, from measuring water usage to emissions and waste produced. She orients her sustainability strategy around making the biggest impact with the lightest lift. So here are Lauren Sherman and Yael Aflalo on what it really takes to create a sustainable global fashion enterprise. Yael, it's very nice to see you. Thank it's you very for doing nice to this. see you too. Thank you. And we're going to talk about entrepreneurship today. We're going to talk about sustainability. I think to start, sustainability is so much about personal values and company values, et cetera, et cetera. What, what was meaningful to you growing up? You started your first business when you were super young. What mattered to you? Um, so I was probably a typical um, preteen and teenage girl and very concerned with um, appearing attractive and cool to, <laughs> to my peers. So you weren't thinking about whether or not no. your, your dress no was recyclable? No student body president, none of that stuff for me. Just And what made you, were you 19 <laughs> when you started your first brand? Yes. What made you decide to do that? At that time. Um, so pashminas were really cool when I was 19 and I knew this like this like Indian store that sold the pashminas and I went and I bought them and I turned them into these like drawstring skirts and sold like 40 of them made, and I made my rent money. How did you know how much to charge? I don't, I'm not sure I exactly did. I'm not like, you know, I wasn't like a cost of goods sold expert. I just was like, okay, you know, it cost me you know, $30 to make this skirt, so I'll sell them for 60 I probably doubled it. Yeah. Something well, maybe like that. Well, now you are a cost of goods expert. Yes. Yeah, I really am. So your first brand is called Yaya, right? Mm-hmm. It, 10 years you had it for? Yes, 10 years. And I think we've talked about this before, but what was kind of the reason that you decided to wind it down and start over and do a reformation. So I hated it for so long. So many years of not <laughs> Why did you it. hate it? Uh, I hated wholesale. So like you have to go to like I would I would make these jokes that I there's a show called Coterie. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard of it? So it was like I would make these jokes that I was gonna get married at Coterie and I was gonna have my kids at Coterie and I was gonna die at Coterie because it was like between Coterie and Intermet, so I felt like I was always at market. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you're just like sort of like begging trying to convince buyers to buy stuff and they're buying it and they're buying the wrong stuff and you have to guarantee it sell through and it just like was and then it would be like let's say coterie is in february right and so they're selling the following september but you know all production had moved to china and my orders with china had been due at the end of december 
you know, early January. And so it was just like this 30-day difference, but the stores would never agree to give me the orders when I actually needed them for the factory. So you would have to guess. And it would be like, this is a ridiculous system. <laughs> like, so you just guessed how many to make and then went to the show and tried to convince people to buy the things that you actually had inventory in. Mm-hmm. And this is how it works. So there's like very frustrating things. I mean, there's more frustrating things. Those are just sort of some areas to highlight. And that was 10 or 15. We talk about this on the site all the time, wholesale and that model. And to me, it just, it's crazy to me that so many people still do it. I guess it's because you can get money up front, but how did you, were people already realizing that that model wasn't going to work? No, no, there wasn't any other model, right? Like back then there really wasn't D to C. Yeah. I mean, there was, but it was like club Monaco or J crew. There yeah. wasn't, like, D2C startups, right? Yeah. It wasn't the internet. So it no. was, like, the only way you were going to do it is through brick and mortar. And that costs way more money. So the, the problem with a brick and mortar store is that you, you don't really need that much quantity. So with one brick and mortar store, you need, like, 12 units, 24 units, 36 units. It's not really enough to hit minimums. So you have to, to subsidize that business for a long time. So what – so you hated it. You were annoyed by the system. It was. It didn't make sense to me. It wasn't logical, and it yeah. was not. It was a very inefficient system. And you did something very. You you had didn't you have like a sub brand at Urban Outfitters, and you kept that going so that you could restart and yeah. do something else. So basically, I closed down Yaya, mm-hmm. which was like took a year, mm-hmm. like for a nine months of lying. Because you have to, like, pretend you're still open so you can, yeah. like, collect your bill. So, like, we had to make a fake sample line that we, like, showed to the stores that we knew we were never going to ship. Yeah. We had, like, a fake, like, answering machine and, like, one or two people that were, like, helping wind it down. Actually, one of the women, two of the women that helped wind it down actually went to go work at, you know, continue to work at Reformation now. Oh, that's funny. It was really funny. That's great. Um, so we went, we winded it down, and then at the time the recession was you know, full steam ahead. And, um, the businesses that were doing well were like Zara and H and M and urban outfitters. And so we contacted urban outfitters and we said, Hey, we want to work with you. Um, and so we started making, um, private label and white label products for urban outfitters. And that's how we made money. And how did, what was your idea for reformation back then? So I didn't, so when I closed the business, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just started doing a few things. Um, some of them now defunct, but, um, one of them was to make money. I made clothes for urban outfitters. And so that was like, it was lucrative and good. Um, and then I also, so I owned a building in LA that housed, um, our old Yaya offices, but like there wasn't <laughs> so during the recession I couldn't rent it out and so there was a store downstairs that was just empty it was next door to a kosher pizza place I remember and the kosher pizza guy was so mean and our store always smelled like pizza kosher but, pizza mm-hmm. kosher pizza yeah and um so we had a we I said you know we have this empty space what are we going to do with it and so we started a vintage store um called Reformation and we just actually just bought Vintage clothes and like clean them and maybe hem them, made some modifications and sold them in our store. And that's how Reformation was for three years, two, three years. And did you back then as, as it started to pick up steam, did you think, okay, I'm going to do 
repurposed vintage or, or upcycled vintage, and that's going to be the business. Because it, right now, I mean, you're seeing it. H&M is going to have a secondhand section oh, in their store. Nice. A lot of all of these retailers are thinking about how to get into upcycled. A lot of young designers are using materials and, and vintage clothes to make new collections. It's happening right now, but back then it wasn't, I know it was a thing, but it wasn't on a scaled thing. So um, I never thought that we would be able to scale um, taking vintage clothes and changing them. Yeah. It's just really hard to scale. It doesn't, it's not like economies of scale. There's no like assembly line. So it's like, it can't really, it has limitations. Yeah. Um, Quality limitations. I was just having the store was like cool and fun and I had one in New York and they were really cool and I would go in there and get lots of clothes. I was still in my cool, attractive goals at that (laughs) point in my life. Um, And then I went on, um, I went on a trip to China with, um, I was working on a project for Urban Outfitters to make shoes for them. And that's when I kind of had this moment where I, you know, was confronted with this really, you know, terrible, horrifying pollution in, um, in China so it was like, you can't breathe. It was just really bad. But basically um, realized that, that I couldn't continue doing what I was doing and I needed to do something um, different. And so after a few days of thinking about it, I realized, you know what? I need to start a sustainable fashion brand. Um, I think I can do it. It definitely needs to be done. Something that is like trendy and appeals to fashionable consumers and I could take this like kind of frustration that I have with the existing wholesale apparel model and I could do something that made sense to me. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And then I thought, okay, I have this vehicle like reformation. It's like, it's a great name. It's cool designs. We have two brick and mortar stores already. Like I'm going to figure out how to turn this into like a big gigantic business. And I always knew that I wanted it to be like, bringing sustainable fashion to everyone, like revolutionizing the fashion industry and like um, being something very big and very innovative. What did sustainability mean to you at that point in terms of sourcing or I know you use a lot of dead stock fabric. Like what, when you thought, okay, I'm going to try to make this better than what other people have done, what were the things that you implemented in the beginning? So first I like hired a consultant where I was like, okay, tell me, like, what are the problems with fashion? How can we make it better? And she kind of gave us, like, a list of things. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the biggest areas. These are the biggest problem areas. Gave us kind of, like, reading material. So we went through all of that. And then it was like, okay. Um, and I have a curious nature. And I'm very, like, I don't want to say nerdy, but, like, a little bit. So, like, picked it all up like a sponge and was like, okay, gotcha. So then kind of set up the list of where were the things that we could be really impactful? What are the things that we could do given our limited resources? And we started to embark on that. And what were some of those things? Um, so the first, you know, the biggest and most important thing with sustainability, I mean, like, I feel like, yes, it's super important to have a holistic approach. Like, yes, right. You have to think about the entire thing, but but you also think about okay, what are the <laughs> what are the one or two things that I can do that are going to have the biggest impact for the like smallest lift? Yeah, and like that's really how we think about it, and that is fiber. Fiber, yeah. So like, that's material fabric. That's the biggest impact in the thing. One hundred percent quickly. Yes, if you so, I think fiber materials is the most important thing. 
And so did you only source dead stock or were you finding... So originally we only did dead stock because that we were so small and we couldn't... Um, we couldn't purchase fabric. So usually fabric minimums are 500 yards to a thousand yards. And like, let's just say a thousand yards. So a dress is like two yards. So that's 500 dresses. And we didn't make 500 (laughs) one thing for many years. So you, so you use dead stock fabric and how has that evolved? Like we barely use it anymore. And what do you use to be sustainable? So we do use dead stock, Mm -hmm. um, but it's a small, very small percentage of what we do. Um, so we have like a list of materials and we kind of break them out into like amazing, good, okay. And then kind of the definitely nots. Yeah. And it's like a closed list. So it's, everybody knows, and it's not that many things on the list. And so we know what we can and can't use. And then we set goals like, okay, we want, I don't know if this is our exact goal, but we want 75% of our fabrics to fall in the A category by 2020. What, what? is the a category what makes so it's got to be it's so if you think about sustainability we think about it in terms of the water usage the co2 the waste that's what we measure and then the the fourth thing is toxicity but we don't measure toxicity toxicity we look at in a different way because measuring toxicity is really morbid because toxicity is measured in in um i think human deaths per year do you still have the list of of kind of how much water you used and all of yeah. all of that? So, stuff? like that list of all of our fabrics also yeah. is published on our website. And have is there anyone Anybody else? Anybody can look at it. Are, are there any other bigger companies? Or I mean, you might be as big as them now, but when you started out, bigger companies that you talk to who who are kind of more open source with their sourcing and and their sustainability initiatives that you they have like the sustainability teams at like patagonia eileen fisher even stella mccartney Mm -hmm. those teams like talk to our team our sustainability team but they're like very like networked and social and always communicating and helping each other yeah that's good so in terms of scaling Mm -hmm. and sustainability how because there's also this idea of sustainability as a sustainable business, like using mm-hmm. it in that context. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff, do you think sourcing your fabric and being more careful about all of these things, do you think it made it for a better business? Did it help your margins? No. Did it? No. It doesn't hurt it. Yeah. But it definitely makes it harder. Yeah. And do you think that the consumer is hip to it did you feel like the the consumer yeah they care so much yeah they didn't used to care so it was like they did not care at all when we first started and now they care a lot what was the flip that switched i think our our uh our marketing i mean communications we think we're very helpful you know i think i think the fact that it's like super hot all the time has been helpful in raising awareness but like there's just been a you know a wave of awareness that's occurred do you ever think about the way organic food and the slow food movement happened and look at that as a precursor to what might happen in fashion or do you think we'll ever get that yeah i think it happened so basically in our first like vc capital raising deck it was like we believe that sustainable fashion is going to be very important in the future and like 
here are some key indicators. So look at what's happened in the organic food movement. Like look at how Whole Foods has taken off and look at how organic foods has taken off. Whereas like six years ago, it was like a bruised peach and like a weird like hippie co-op store that you didn't want to go to, right? Um, And then also looking at the automotive industry, like the advent of like electric vehicles, Tesla, you know, the Prius, I mean, Prius at the time was like so popular, right? Um, And so we said, hey, these are the indicators we believe that that sustainability is going to take hold in fashion. You know, cut to our last investor deck where it was like, look at how much we can actually, we actually have numbers where we can say, look at how much value sustainability creates for reformation. Look at how important it is for our customers. Tons of like numbers on that. In the way that the consumers have flipped, have the investors also, yes. they care way more than yes. when you started. Yes. Like it's so, you know what I mean? It was like when we first were like, we're a sustainable fashion brand. They're like, huh? Like, you know, confused, but like super into like our growth numbers. And now I would say, you know, one of the most interesting things to investors is the sustainability. They're like very interested in it in a very major way. And when did you first take a significant chunk of investment? What's significant? I'd say like <laughs> I can just I tell know, you our like funding history. Under we 10, did twelve million. So okay. we got we got twelve million was our first round. Um, so that was what four years into it already. I think or it was five. fourteen or fifteen. I started that vintage store reformation in two thousand nine. Okay, but I didn't like go on the trip to China and decide like okay I'm gonna start working full time on this reformation sustainable fashion brand. That was like twenty early twenty thirteen. Okay, late twenty twelve. Okay, so like three years into it, I pretty two much when I years. came back from China, I was like okay I need to build like a sustainable fashion brand. Like how do I do it? Yeah, it was really cute. I was like okay I need a venture capitalist because like that's what I need. <laughs> I was like, I like looked them up on Wikipedia. I was like venture capitalist, and then I like looked up all these. um, I looked up all these like articles about it, and it was like how to build a deck for a venture capitalist. And I remember like I went away with my friends to the Hamptons one weekend, and like they were like, "What are you doing in your room?" And I wouldn't leave my room because I was just building my venture capitalist deck. And like halfway through it, I was like, "I don't know how to do this." (laughs) Um, And then I started hiring like. And then I hired two MBAs. I was like, okay, I need an MBA because they're going to know how to like do this venture capitalist stuff, which I need in order to build a big business. So, who were your first investors? Um, Nick Brown from Fourteen W, mm-hmm. um, Andrew Rosen, and those were like the big ones. And those are both and Stripes, Stripes okay. Group, but they were like more part of our second round. Okay. But Andrew and Nick are both product people, especially yeah. Andrew. Yeah. I, I doubt Andrew was like definitely investing in this because of the sustainability. They, they invested in you because well, they believed in what you do. Well, I had a relationship with Andrew for a while before that because I knew him from my old business. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's like, I think he, you know, for them, I think in the beginning they were very much about the growth. Yeah. We had like really compelling growth numbers. This podcast is delivered by DHL. As the logistics partner of many of fashion's most prestigious businesses, from billion-dollar brands to emerging designers and innovative SMEs, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Present in more than 220 countries and territories, 
DHL provides tailored and comprehensive go green logistics and business solutions that enable fashion businesses to grow sustainably as they expand domestically and into new international markets. For more information about DHL and how it can help your business increase transparency around your environmental impact, minimize logistics related emissions, and offset what cannot be avoided, visit logistics.dhl. So the interesting thing about Reformation is, A, you, there are tons of copycat brands that have not only copycat your model, but also like tried to get into a similar aesthetic. How did you, A, scale and B, kind of stay a step ahead of those brands in terms of your audience and your customer and all of that? I mean, when they first started popping up, I was so annoyed. And now I don't even care at all. Yeah. So I really don't pay attention to them whatsoever. I've never been like a person that's obsessed with competitors. I don't think about it much. What do you do instead, and, and why do you feel like that? What are you, like, looking in the rearview mirror? you got to look forward. Yeah. So it's like, if anything, I'm looking at, like, gigantic companies. Yeah. And so I remember when I was first being really annoyed with them, I thought, you know what, I'm looking in the rearview mirror. Like, I need to be looking at, like, I should spend my time, like, thinking about, like, Zara, you know? Yeah. Like, why is Zara so big? What does Zara do right? So I, I focus on that stuff. And then I think, like, what, what do we do better? I think Reformation is, like, a really great combination of, like, a really great business model, like, very fast fashion, we're very quantitative, we're very data-driven, um, which I think is very unique. Um, and then great product. I think we have a commitment to, like, providing people with the best possible product. Um, and then, like, a very true, real, um, authentic brand story and, and commitment to sustainability. I think when you, like, kind of put those together, like, there's not really a, a copycat brand that ticks all those boxes. No, it, it sounds very hard to do all of those th- three things at once, and most people would not have the, the grit to get through it. Yeah, probably. I have a lot of grit. I can tell. Grit is like, <laughs> grit is, yeah, I have grit. And moxie. Somebody once told me you have a lot of moxie. I had to Google it, but it's a good one. I like moxie. That's a good word. Moxie's good. In terms of you know, looking at where you are now, mm-hmm. what drives you to want to be really, really big? <laughs> like, why do you want to get huge? Like, how big do you want to get? You just, you know, we can talk about your latest kind of funding situation. <laughs> um, but before that, I am just curious, like, why do you want to be really big? What do you think that will do? It doesn't sound like you're it driven necessarily by money or something. It's not going to solve all my problems? No. Make me a happier person? No. <laughs> Weird. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it will. It, Maybe it has will, right? for about one out of a hundred people I talk to. <laughs> so funny. My husband goes, my husband always says to me, why aren't you ever happy with anything? I was like, that's not true. I'm very happy, but I also want more. Yeah. Like, can't you be happy and also want more? So that's me. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's always been our goal to like revolutionize the fashion industry and, and make it efficient and very sustainable. And I think the bigger we get, the more impact we can make. Yeah. And in terms of inventory, you said efficient and that's the first thing that popped into my head. And this comes back to sustainability. A lot. We talk a lot about speed to market and we talk about 
you know, shrinking inventory and thinking about the whole, the way the wholesale business works, which is basically you're like, I'm going to guess what, how much people are going to buy. A, what are you doing in, in inventory to minimize waste? And B, you know, have you seen any real advancement in speed to market and the way things are manufactured and produced that you feel is good for the future of the industry? I think fast fashion is just way better. Yeah. So, you know, it just doesn't even make sense to make something that slow, especially when somebody, when fashion consumers are super fickle and trends are changing so quickly and everybody has like access to these trends via the internet and like why would you want to take forever to make your clothes yeah it doesn't but are there real advancements in technology and how clothes are made so that it is easier basically what happens is like in clothes like clothes take a week to make like fabric takes a few hours to make yeah but what they do is is they just put you in this long line and then they kind of in the line, like the factories, like during the line process, they're doing some engineering to try to figure out how to make it more cost effective, mm-hmm. marginal improvements, right? They're making marginal improvements, but really what they're doing is they're making sure that their lines never break. Does that make sense? What do you mean by lines never break? Like, let's just say like they're making sure that their manufacturing teams are always busy. Okay. So they don't want them, you know, like a second of downtime for a manufa- for a manufacturer's like a nightmare because mm-hmm. they're like paying all the costs, but they're not getting any output. Yeah. And so that's what they're trying to optimize for. And I'm like, yeah, but like, okay, how about I give you, <laughs> how would I give you 5% more? How about I give you 10% more, but just make it really fast. Don't make me wait in line mm-hmm. because then what happens is, is like, let's just say like, what's really hot right now. Like these, like, like our milk matey kind of like mm-hmm. tops, like square neck puff sleeves. Okay, mm-hmm. great. So like, I need those now. Yeah. Right. So it's like if I can if I can give you like pay a little bit more and I get those now, I'll sell them all out. Okay. And then I'll get another reorder and I'll sell those all out. And my competitor is still waiting to get their first order on it because they're so obsessed with getting a five percent or a seven percent better margin on it. But I've sold it two or three times now. Like yeah. doesn't that but it's just like it's like a linear kind of thing where they're just like does that make sense? Yeah, and in reality they'll the your competitor will probably have to mark stuff down because they get it too late in the yeah, season. Yeah, nobody or wants what it anymore. You. They don't want the milk bait tops now. They want poet blouses. Yeah. And so I'm like and so that's sort of the difference and so what happens is um you know, everybody's like, oh, how come, you know, everybody loves your stuff and all that stuff. It's like, uh, I'm just making what the customers tell me yeah. to make. Yeah. Well, it just sounds like you take the risk when you I don't even need to take risks. I hate yeah. taking risks. Like, yeah. risks, like, it's, like, so... That was, like, the other thing that I would say, like, when you would have to buy the inventory before mm-hmm. you had the orders. Like, what? Like, I'd be like, it's like gambling. Why yeah. would you... That's not a business decision. That's, like, a horrible, like stressful thing yeah why would you want to do that and same thing like when i would design when in my old business we'd be designing for a year from now i'd be like maybe like okay you know the sweater program we're gonna do black and gray and then we need two fashion colors what colors do you want to do i'm like i don't know what girls want to wear next year it's like a stressful situation yeah so you have these like kind of designers that walk in they're like ochre and you're like you know what i mean everybody looks at them like they must know it's ochre because they're design genius it's like wait are you meanwhile are you like 
clairvoyant. <laughs> like, Meanwhile, they got it from the Pantone color. Yeah, book totally. Or and so they spend like whatever amount of money on these like trend guides of like what's going to be cool next year. You're like, yeah. this is crazy. So fast fashion, you said, is much better. It's like just makes more sense. It makes more sense. In the last two years in particular, a lot of the biggest players have been really pushed about their lack of sustainability, burning product, having too much product. People are much more interested in secondhand than they used to be, ender ownership, et cetera, et cetera. How can you be a fast fashion, huge company, and also be a sustainable company that's thinking about the environmental impact? So, like... Fast fashion, as we know it now, because the biggest fast fashion people are like this, right? So the biggest fast fashion people like this make a lot of very cheap clothing. That's what fast fashion is like. But it doesn't have to be that, right? Like we're fast fashion and we're not that. Yeah. So because we make our clothes quickly, does that make us less sustainable or more sustainable than a company that takes 12 months to make something? Like that doesn't, they don't, doesn't equate, right? No. Um, but but selling a huge volume of things that is putting that more product into the world. Right? That has to do with cheapness. So you we're not that cheap, so yeah. And we don't, you know, like our units like is determined by our demand. Zara's units and H and M's units are determined by their demand. So your theory or or way of thinking about it is you'll get as big as you can get at the quality. So people want their clothes to be ethical. They want their clothes to be sustainable, right? That's one thing. But then on the other hand, it's like they also want cheap clothes. Let's yeah. be realistic, right? So it's yeah. like we get just as we get more comments on our Instagram complaining about the price of our clothes than we do about like sustainability comments, right? Which is fine. Like I get it. People, if you don't have as much disposable income, you still want access to the same clothes. Like what am I going to tell you? Like, you can't wear the new, like, lime green trend because you don't have enough money. So Zara is going to let you wear the lime green trend. And so it's like, as sustainability people, we're going to go and, like, pass judgment on them because they can't afford to spend more money on... You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think that... I, I just don't think the argument's being framed fairly. Are you thinking at all about circular economy and how to kind of upcycle what yes. you're doing? We're very... Very, we have circularity goals. I think the goal was 75,000, but I think it was well over 100,000 garments we recycled last oh, year. Oh, wow. So that's pretty good. That's very impressive. We have like programs for recycling, we have programs for um, reselling, we have vintage stores where we sell vintage products. So. so you are at another phase of growth for the business. You, you took a majority investment from yes. Premira. Yeah. That's a private equity firm. Yes. Private equity money is very particular because they are going to want an exit. Usually that means... That means all IP. investors want an exit. All investors want an exit. But if Including you Including public, public investors. <laughs> that, that's a... It's a very good way to put it. So, so you're usually private equity looks to three to five years. Some yeah. of the nicer ones are happy to stay on for ten. Why did you choose private equity instead of you know a strategic partner becoming part of a group or something or acquiring an IPOing yourself? What what made you decide that this was the next step in scaling? So we, we need a little bit more time before we would be IPO ready. We're not true. ready for that now. True. 
I mean, we could have been, but I think we just felt like, okay, let's, let's take a little bit more time before yeah. that, that option comes on the table. Um, and then just, you know, given the size of the company and where the company was at, like at its growth cycle, we felt like private equity, private equity would be like the right partner for the next stage of growth. And looking back, you know, you're in a really good position. You're expanding globally. We just had a piece on the site. Yeah. Everyone should read it if, if they haven't already mm-hmm. by Kathleen Chen about your, your growth plans. When you look back over the last, you've done two businesses over 20 years. When you mm-hmm. look back over the last 10 years and think about, is there anything you would have changed or what was like the biggest mistake that in the end ended up being a great lesson that that you feel like the business is stronger for it? I mean, a few things. I think one is you can't underestimate the importance of technology. Like, you just literally can't. I think, like, getting really smart, investing a ton in tech, it's, like, it's so important, especially in an e-commerce business. You have to be top-notch there. So I think sometimes we... Um, you know, we scaled really quickly and sometimes our technology didn't scale as quickly. Um, and it's hard, right? It's like super hard to hire, um, engineers. It's like, you know, really hard to understand a lot of the technology stuff. So I would say prioritizing that. I see that as a challenge across businesses from really small companies to huge multi-brand e-commerce. Yeah. It's It's like complicated stuff and there's like not a ton and that like talent is, um, is scarce. So it's like hard to hire engineers. So that's one. Um, I would say like, <clears throat> like when I first started, I was think I was like a little bit too susceptible to this kind of like startup culture. Like this is how you have to do everything. And like, this is the way you grow a business. And like, you know, everybody always wants to like ask me questions about scaling and all this stuff. And there's just so much like, I think misinformation out there. And like these ideas that I think were started by like, VC backed companies that maybe apply to like tech companies that are growing like 3000% year over year. But I think for the most part, I wish I hadn't have listened to that so much. Yeah. Cause like right now we've kind of come back to like a little bit more of a moderate approach and I, a little bit more similar to how we first started out and integrating definitely some of this like idea of best practices of like startup scaling. But I think having, having not having gone as gung ho as we did. Well, if someone came up to you tomorrow or one of the hundreds of emails you get about they they want to start a business, I'm sure these people see you and they say, I, I want to do my own business. I want it to be sustainable. What What is the one piece of advice that you would give them? Make a list. You have your list of items and you have two... Um, you have two rows next to it. And the first one is how impactful of it is. And then the next one over is the level of difficulty and you like fill it all in. So it's like making your shipping more environmentally friendly, making your packaging more environmentally friendly, making your products, making your office. And you kind of like write that whole list. And then you start with the ones that are the easiest and the most impactful. And then as you grow, you start moving to the ones that are more impactful, but difficult. And then, like, towards the end, it's, like, not that impactful and also difficult, which is kind of where Reformation is at. (laughs) One thing we didn't talk about is you produce a lot of your product here, right, in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles and in China. And how do you 
sort of balance that and and what is do you consider the environmental impact of the shipping from China all of versus it. all of it and and you just kind of you go through your your new list and and weigh the pros and cons and figure out in the end what like right now persons. we're dealing with packaging so like all clothes is shipped in poly bags like plastic bags mm-hmm. we used to always ship ours in um like these thick envelopes and we would package it in a thick envelope and ship it in the same thick envelope. But like now that we're bringing stuff in from China and now that we're shipping stuff to like Nordstrom's, like that doesn't work anymore. And so it's like literally cannot find a, uh, having a, not cannot, but having a hard time finding like the right bag. So we originally got a bag that was like made out of like bioplastic. But, like, they couldn't make enough for us. Yeah. So they can't make enough for us. So that's not going to work. So we went to them, and, like, they just don't make enough. And then now we're moving to, like, 100% recycled plastic and 100% um, recyclable. Okay. Right? And I'm like, I still don't like it, you know, but we have to move to it for now from, like, a, like a, just a logistics perspective. So we're still looking for something, like, I don't want to have, like, plastics at all. Yeah. It's like, how are we going to do it? So those are like the things that we kind of deal with. Well, I look forward to when you develop the imaginary <laughs> packaging that ensures to come. Like we were like, oh, like we should. We think that our current one will self-destruct in like five years, but no one's. We haven't had five years to wait for it to self-destruct. Well, it self-destructed ten percent in one year, or no, in forty-five days. I'm definitely going to put a note on my calendar to follow up with you five years from now to see if they've all self-destructed. That'd be really cool, right? Yes, for sure. Especially if you had a big party. That's a great marketing moment. I know. I wanted to be like, I was like, I want to write on the bag, like, this bag will self-destruct in five years. I love that. But I can't make the claim. Someday. Someday I'll make it. Well, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time. It was super fun. And I look forward to seeing what you guys do next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of sustainable entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.